I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you doing today? I am doing okay. How about yourself? I am, as usual, surviving and hanging in there, which is pretty much all you can ask for anyone at this point in time. I I feel that deeply. So what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Camelot, with music by Frederick Lowe, lyrics and book by Alan J. Lerner, adapted from the T.H. White novel, The Once and Future King. Camelot opened at the Majestic Theater on December 3rd in 1960 and played 873 performances before closing on January 5th of 1963. Camelot was directed by Moss Hart, music directed by Franz Allers, and choreographed by Hanya Holm. The original cast included Richard Burton as King Arthur, Julie Andrews as Guinevere, Robert Goulet as Lancelot, Roddy McDowell as Mordred, and David Hurst as Merlin. Camelot was nominated for five Tony Awards, winning four, leading actor, music director, scenic design, and costume design. Camelot opens in the forest around the kingdom of Camelot. King Arthur is wandering around and contemplating his future as king and his upcoming betrothal to Guinevere. He is joined by his counselor, the magician Merlin. Merlin is living backward in time, and thus has knowledge of the future, and he cautions Arthur that he needs to act more kingly. Arthur is then left alone, so he naturally climbs a tree and sees a woman coming through the forest. Guinevere arrives, and thinking she's alone, she does some contemplating of her own, also nervous about her upcoming betrothal. Climbing down out of the tree, Arthur surprises Guinevere and introduces himself as Wart his childhood nickname, and extols the wonders of Camelot. They fall in love at first sight and almost share a kiss before Arthur's attendants surprise both of them. Arthur is revealed as king and tells Guinevere the story of how he pulled the sword from the stone to become king. Merlin reappears and the two betrothed leave. But not all good news. Merlin is losing his memories of the future and he realizes that he is being approached by the nymph Nemu to draw him into an eternal sleep. As he falls asleep, he realizes that he never warned Arthur about the dual approaching dangers of Mordred and Lancelot. Five years have elapsed, and Arthur and Guinevere are now married. Arthur is contemplating the establishment of a new type of knight, one that is more of a peacekeeper. With Guinevere's help and inspiration, Arthur establishes the concept of the round table and his cadre of knights who will fight for right. Another five years have elapsed, and the knights of the round table have been established. News of Arthur's group has reached France, and the brash young Lancelot du Lac sets out for Camelot to become a knight of the round table. After a time, he arrives and endears himself to Arthur. At a May Day celebration, Arthur introduces Lancelot to Guinevere 
and she takes an instant dislike to him, as have most of all the other knights. More time passes, and Guinevere has convinced three knights to challenge Lancelot to a joust. Arthur bemoans this as his knights should be above petty squabbles, but cannot fault Guinevere as she is merely a woman. The four men joust, and Lancelot defeats them easily, but severely wounds the last knight, who appears to have died. Crying over his body, it appears to the crowd that Lancelot has resurrected the man. Moved, Arthur knights Lancelot to the round table, and Guinevere realizes that she is falling in love with Lancelot. Despite his outward boastfulness of being above the sins of the flesh, Lancelot is also deeply in love with the queen. Neither are willing to betray Arthur, who has also noticed the feelings between Guinevere and Lancelot, but he metaphorically plugs his ears, hoping it'll all just blow over. Act one ends with Arthur alone, vowing to meet any challenges that face them. Act two begins several years later, with Guinevere and Lancelot in torment. They are both deeply in love, but refuse to betray Arthur. Guinevere begs Lancelot to leave, but is refused. Everyone is shocked by the arrival of Mordred, Arthur's illegitimate son. Arthur places his son within the round table and puts him in charge of the knight's training. However, Mordred has a secret plan to dispose Arthur and take Camelot for himself. In order to achieve his plan, Mordred visits the enchanted glade of his aunt, Morgan Le Fay and asks her to trap Arthur in her invisible walls for a knife, as one does. She agrees and traps Arthur the next day whilst he is out hunting. Free of Arthur's presence, Mordred starts working on the knights, reminding them of the old days of their pillaging and fighting for themselves, and successfully turns some of them against Arthur. This drives Lancelot into the arms of Guinevere, where they both give in to temptation and kiss. Of course, Mordred was planning for this and accuses the two of them of treason. Lancelot fights his way free, but Guinevere is captured. Upon his return, Arthur is informed of what happened. Unwillingly, he agrees that Guinevere must be held to the same law he himself set forth and is sentenced to death by burning. The day of the execution arrives, and Arthur watches from the castle in the company of Mordred, who is now openly mocking him for his failures as a king. Arthur is torn. He cannot save Guinevere himself because she was lawfully convicted, but he still loves her and does not wish for her to die. At the last minute, Lancelot arrives at the head of an army and frees Guinevere before fleeing back to France. However, several knights have perished in the battle, and so Arthur is honor-bound to go to war with Lancelot. More time has passed, and Arthur is fighting a war on two fronts, against Mordred and his former knights near Camelot, as well as in France against Lancelot and his army. Despondent, Arthur fears that he has lost everything, his dream of the round table, his wife, and possibly his kingdom. Arthur is sitting outside his camp the night before battle, when he is approached by Lancelot and Guinevere. The two have parted over their guilt over betraying Arthur, and Guinevere has entered a nunnery. 
the two offer to come back to Camelot to stand trial, but Arthur cannot stand the thought of having to execute either of them. He forgives them both, and they leave separately, Guinevere to the convent and Lancelot back to his army. Before he has the chance to return to his own camp, Arthur finds a stowaway, a young boy by the name of Tom. Tom has snuck away from his home and traveled with the army in order to become one of Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. Inspired by his devotion, Arthur sends young Tom back to Camelot with the instructions to extol its virtues and carry on Arthur's ideas of chivalry and honor. That is a lot of material for one show. It really is. And a lot of passing time. Many, many years have passed. And it's it's actually kind of interesting because on one hand, I understand what Lerner and Lowe were trying to go here. And there was a conscious decision in them trying to adapt the T.H. White version of the Arthurian legend. For those of you who aren't aware, the Arthurian legend is old as England. The British Isles is itself. It is one of their oldest foundational mythologies of the modern era. And there have been umpteen million different versions of that mythology as it's come through the years. The one that they chose by T.H. White is actually rather recent. And some of the story points actually end up being somewhat familiar because some of them were also used by Disney in The Sword and the Stone. But it's a little bit to their detriment, I feel, in this production because the show ends up suffering from too much source material-itis. So we have the formation of Camelot with the marrying of Guinevere. We have the passing reference of Arthur pulling the stone from the sword. We've got the disappearance of Merlin with the nymph Nemu. We've Who, got, by the way, is just happens to be living backwards through time, apparently. Hey, it looks great when you need someone to know something about the future, but don't want to actually show how that happens. I mean, it's, it's a great plot device. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I suppose but that's fair. We've ended up, we end up having the formation of the Knights of the Round Table, the introduction of Lancelot, the, the love story between Lancelot and Guinevere, and, and on and on and so forth. And that's just Act 1. So Act 2 comes, we still haven't introduced um, Mordred, we still haven't made any mention of Morgan Le Fay, which is interesting because in the original Broadway cast, the story includes Morgan Le Fay. Later revivals end up cutting it completely and, and Arthur is just gone for a I night. I can't believe they wanted to cut the magical woods. Why would you want to cut the magical woods? It's one less set, maybe? I, you know, that's... that's... <laughs> so... We have Arthur disappearing for a night. Then we have Lancelot and Guinevere's betrayal. And then we have the trial and the execution. And then the second war. And then a, a war between more. And this is all in one show. And so for those of you who have had the opportunity to see this show live, it is a marathon of an experience. This book is verbose. This book is long. 
And this book just keeps going and going and going. And it, it's a book that's kind of notorious as just being bad. It, it, because of all of the things that John has just said, it's hard to get through this show as an audience member because there's just so much that's being thrown at you. Which is interesting because it's a weird dichotomy between the book and the music. The music, as opposed to the book, it's clear, it's concise, and the lyrics are incredibly eloquent. They really are. I mean, you know, just in terms of setting up plot, you know, uh, Guinevere and Arthur are betrothed. They haven't met before, and we know that very clearly from Guinevere's first song where she says, I won't be bidden bartered, I won't be... Yeah, bit and bartered for like beads at a bazaar. That's the line, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah, that's the line. I'm not losing my mind. And so we know that she has no relationship to this person she's being uh, betrothed to. And that's why she's upset. And it's very, very clear dramatically where she's coming from and what's going on in her mind. And that's all we needed was what takes like maybe five seconds to say and then the book is going to go on for hours and hours trying to say things. A good example of that is also the Act 1 finale versus Mordred's Fie on Goodness. So Act 1 ends with Arthur giving this wonderful soliloquy with underscoring, and, and it's a patriotic for Camelot moment. No, because you can't be patriotic for Camelot. Um, Why can't you be patriotic for Camelot? Maybe you can can be. We can have Camelot patriots. Okay. So you're patriotic for Camelot. And it's a spoken soliloquy. And it's verbose. And it's long. And he repeats himself. And he reemphasizes himself. And then you contrast this in Act 2 with Mordred saying, Fie on goodness, fie. And he basically convinces most of the Knights of the Round Table to become baddies in about three minutes. It's that succinctness within the music that makes it amazing and that same lack of succinctness everywhere else that makes it frustrating. Um, one of the things we were talking about earlier before, as we were preparing was also one of our favorite topics, the ending of the show. Yeah. So I, this is a show that I've not done and it's a show that I've not seen. So uh, John wrote the synopsis for this and I was really relying on that to know exactly what happened. And I got to the end and I was like, wait, okay. So Arthur sends some random kid named Tom back to Camelot. Uh, Guinevere and Lancelot are gone, but what's going on with Mordred? Cause he's still causing problems, right? Yeah. It's one of the things I feel like this show's weakness is it gives us all this information, but it assumes that your audience just knows certain things. So in T.H. White's novel, as well as the Arthurian legend, he ends up going back to Camelot, having his final battle with Mordred. In some versions, Mordred and Arthur kill each other at the same time. In some versions, just Mordred kills Arthur. The sword Excalibur is then thrown back into the lake where the basically the legend resets and the next person who is worthy to wield the sword will be presented with it and Camelot will be reestablished and there will be a golden age. But it's just assumed that the per, the audience knows this because you don't get any of that in the show at all. And I think that's 
probably not a great assumption on Lerner and Lowe's part. You know, we talked about in South Pacific how the ending of the show was a little odd, but everyone in America knew exactly what was about to happen to those people because everyone had just lived through World War II. Not everyone has read the Arthurian legends of any rendition, let alone the specific one that, that they're using here. And I think that, you know, is just... I wish they had found a, a better way of drawing everything together at the end for us as an audience. While there may have been some of those problems in the book about it being verbose and in drawing kind of things to a conclusion or at least a summation, one of the things I know we both agree on is this music is absolutely beautiful. It is one of the best scores for any Broadway musical. And I think that's part of why people like you and I get so frustrated with the show because we desperately want to perform this music, but the book is so difficult to slog through. And it's, I mean, top to bottom. So you have Lerner's lyrics, you have Lowe's music. You, we once again have the appearance of Robert Russell Bennett, who was a common orchestrator for Lerner and Lowe, for Rogers and Hammerstein, and is hands down one of the best orchestrators in the known universe, especially when it comes to theater music. There's no weak point in this music, whether it's the orchestration, whether it's the lyrics, whether it's the actual music. From the first note of the overture to the last note of the exit music, there is not one moment where you're like, oh, this... And it's, not, it's also, as much as a Broadway score is going to be, it's relatively diverse music. I mean, you have music like uh, If Ever I Would Leave You that is just beautiful and lush and full and some of the most gorgeous music ever written. And then you have more kind of uh, Broadway-style comedy tunes like Take Me to the Fair, where uh, Guinevere is, is seducing the three knights into fighting Lancelot for her that is also brilliant and funny and clever and clear but in a totally different style both done wonderfully one take me to the fair is hilarious and I like how you put it earlier it's pretty much whenever you're going to three guys and saying hey you know you know there's this guy Lancelot be really cool if you kind of killed him you know if you if you think about it that would be great, you know? I, I'd yeah, I'd appreciate that. Thanks a lot, guys. If you, if, you, if, you, if you kill him, we can go on a date. That'd be fun, right? In addition to all of this, and, and, and we, you know, as, as much as we enjoy a good comedy song about death, some of the music, How to Handle a Woman, if, and again, like you mentioned before, If Ever I Would Leave You, these are high watermarks in the golden age theater experience these are songs that are now kind of studied by composers uh by lyricists this is really what you want to aim for in just the depth of emotion the depth of the musicality that you can present in a show and i want to emphasize it again also the clarity behind the songs every single one you know exactly what is happening and what is going on and why it's there and it's it's so curious to me to see that you know uh, Lerner wrote the lyrics and the book because the lyrics are brilliant in their cleverness their concise nature and their ability to motivate the story and the plot it it is you know it's head scratching 
to compare them to the book? Ultimately, for me, I think what it comes down to is the lyrics versus the book show the two extremes of how this show is received. If you look at it from the book only, at best, this show is a series of vignettes where we get a scene here and then time passes and we get a scene here and time passes. And it just, they're self-contained. They're not always interesting on their own merits. They have the same characters, but okay, whatever. However, the music, because it does have this conciseness, because it does have this clarity and it has this scope, you can see a through plot through each song. You can see the growth of Guinevere from her opening number through Take Me to the Fair to, you know, to the very end of the show. Same deal with Lancelot and Arthur. That same growth isn't always mirrored in the book alone. Well, and, you know, the music, unlike some of the shows we've talked about in the past, the music fairly successfully stands on its own in terms of communicating the story that happens. You know, like I said, my only experience with this show is having listened to the soundtrack, and I still knew just from the soundtrack what the the broad scope of the story was and and how it plays out. So for this show, um, if you don't know Will Ferrell's Robert Goulet impression, I'm going to suggest that you listen to the original Broadway cast recording because Richard Burton, Julie Andrews, and Robert Goulet, it's three fantastic voices performing beautiful music. But John, I know you have an alternate suggestion. If you're going to have the opportunity to check out a certain cast album, I'm actually going to recommend the movie soundtrack. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a huge fan of Richard Burton and Julie Andrews and Goulet is Goulet. I mean, you can't go wrong with a good Robert Goulet. But for me, the trio of Richard Harris, Vanessa Redgrave, and Franco Nero that we saw in the movie version blows them out of the water. And this is actually one of the few shows where I almost prefer the movie to the stage production because it does have an opportunity to fix some of the book problems. It makes it a little bit more streamlined and easier to enjoy from the very beginning to the very end. Either way, go listen to this show if you haven't, because it is some of the best music out there. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.